A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Anybody? Good morning. Ock? There it is. Hey, all right. Am I on back here, Stephen? Yeah? Okay. Good. Good to see you this morning. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. I've got, I've seen some people with some green. I've worn my green shoes this morning in honor of St. Patrick's Day. Good to have you with us. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Peoria. Glad you decided to worship with us this morning. Um, Would you pray with me as we start? Uh, We need God to engage us this morning, his spirit to awaken us to what he wants to teach us. So let's pray to that end. Pray with me. Father, thanks for your goodness to us, for your love for us, your intentional pursuit of us. I pray you would help us this morning. God, would you open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Would you open our ears to hear what we want to hear? God, would you help us as we look at how you loved people, that we would love people well. We need your spirit to do that. We are desperate for you to show up and change us. We ask this of you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I don't have a memory in my life without the game of basketball somewhere in it. I grew up in a house, um, my dad played basketball, I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me that played basketball, we moved a lot growing up to different states, different homes, there was a constant in every home, we had a ball and a hoop in every single home that we lived in, so continued to play basketball up through high school, I went to the University of Arizona, not to play basketball, (laughs) Um, but Through some friendships, I actually ended up being one of the practice players on the women's basketball team, and then I was a manager for two years after that, so I got to travel, stay around the game. I started coaching shortly after I graduated from college, and I've just been around it all my life, even to this day. I helped coach one of my sons. I still play. I love the game of basketball. And there's a player named Kobe Bryant. Yes, I don't don't like Kobe Bryant either. So I'm glad some of you feel that way. Although he is a great player. He played for many years in the NBA. He was an 18, um, 18-time NBA All-Star. He won multiple championships with the Lakers. Uh, he retired maybe two or three years ago. And now he's trying to figure out what his life is about. Because basketball is now gone. He's not competing anymore. And he decided to start this show called Details on ESPN. Has anybody seen this show before on ESPN, where he basically, and there's some other athletes that have done it too, some retired athletes, where they take a segment of film, Kobe for basketball, and he breaks down what's happening in the actual play. And so he'll take a player and kind of spotlight them and move around and look and help you see things that you wouldn't normally see if you were just watching the game of basketball. So I want to show a clip of that um, just to give you some context. He is analyzing an older player, Scottie Pippen, who played with Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. And he's specifically looking at the way that Scottie Pippen is playing defense on a guard named Mark Jackson. Just this one play. Let's watch this minute-long clip. And even if 
even if you don't love basketball, even if you hate basketball, I want you to appreciate the intentional devotion that Kobe Bryant has to an analyzing this one play. Let's watch it. If I'm a young player coming into the league today, I would really focus on the defensive end of the floor and look at Scottie Pippen. I mean, this guy was a genius. His ball pressure, playing passing lanes, blocking shots, taking charges, and he played with a passion on the defensive end of the floor. Like, no, this is the most exciting part of the game to me. All right, so here again, Scotty is initiating the action. He's making Mark work to bring the ball up the floor, okay? That's one. Now, where he's pushing him, he's pushing him into situations where Mark can't really attack. Right here, you got Michael sitting here waiting, right? That area is clogged up. There's nowhere for him to go. So Scotty's fully aware of that. So he knows you can put a lot of pressure on him in these areas because there's nowhere for him to drive. And so now, where is Mark looking, right? He's looking for these curl actions here. Yeah, he couldn't run the play, right? Scotty took the play away from him. Here he cuts the angle off. Now Mark says, okay, I got to attack him. He's bodying up on me. I'm going to attack him. Mark attacks him here. But now Scotty, you know, sensing that Mark wants to feel the contact, right? Because Scotty's been bodying him this whole time. So now Mark seeks the contact and Scotty just backs up. Scotty just backs up. I mean, that, that's just brilliant defense. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, he, he's bodying Mark the whole game. Body him, body him, body him. Now Mark's looking for, for Scotty's body and Scotty just, just moves back unless Mark loses balance. That's a game of cat and mouse right there. So what we've been doing since the calendar year, if you're new with us, has been we've been walking through this series called Loved Walked Among Us. And we've been attempting to slow down and reverse and change angles and look at the person of Jesus. Because for many of us, we kind of read through the Gospels and we just kind of go over it. And we need to slow down enough to understand what is Jesus doing? If God is love, and if Jesus is God, and we want to love like God, and we want to love like Jesus, God gives us the perfect example in the human of Jesus to examine, to look at. And so we've been looking specifically at the humanity of Jesus, how he had conversations with people, how he was feeling as a human to help us understand what does it look like for us to love people? And we believe that that is our ultimate goal as Christians, is to love. Our ultimate purpose or existence is to love God and to love others. And if that's true, if that's the reason we were created, and God gives us an actual tangible expression of what that looks like in the person of Jesus, don't you think it would make sense for us to slow down and examine that person? So that's what we've been attempting to do since the beginning of the calendar year. We've been trying to slow down and look at Jesus and how he loves. Some of the things we've uncovered in the last several months are that love starts with looking. There's a pattern to love as Jesus interacts with other people. He always first looks at people and then compassion comes and then he acts or moves to action. We cannot love without first looking. We also learn that love requires compassion, as we said, but not only does it require compassion, but it's held in tension with honesty. We've seen Jesus do this time and time again as we've looked at his life. We've seen that love depends on God and that obedience to God matters. We're trying to love God and love people. Obedience to God matters. We've looked at that 
fact that love is outward focused and it allows for interruptions. It allows for intrusions. And then last week, we looked at the fact that love is energized by faith. Not a faith in what Jesus can get you, not an American Christianity version of faith, but a faith on Jesus himself. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an interaction that encompasses kind of all that we've learned so far. This is one scene is really a snapshot of what we've seen the last several months as Jesus has this interaction with this woman. And the reason we've got it placed here in this series is because next week, we're going to turn the corner, and for the next four weeks, we're going to look at love in the midst of death as Jesus heads to the cross. So I want to point out four aspects that we're going to see in our text in this interaction this morning. The first one is this, that love intentionally pursues. The second, that love crosses cultures. The third, love goes below the surface. And the fourth is that love is contagious. And what we'll see this morning is how Jesus, as he loves people, he holds, again, both compassion and honesty intention while being woven together and rooted in dependence. So let's get it in. John chapter 4. Open your Bible if it's not already open. Verse 1. This is a really hard text to preach because this is so packed. There's so much we could do with what's going on here. I, Sean had John 6 last week, which was really hard. I thought he did a great job because he had mentioned even last week that you could spend a whole year unpacking John 6, and some people have. I feel the same way about John chapter 4. So let's specifically look at the angle of how Jesus loved in this interaction. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Let's stop there. This is the scene that John is setting us up for. This is the backdrop of this interaction that Jesus has with this woman. And on the surface, if you read those first couple of verses, Jesus learns that the Pharisees have an understanding that he is making more disciples. He's baptizing more disciples than John. And it could be that the Pharisees liked that because it actually made John's ministry kind of low and really kind of discounted it. And the Pharisees did not like John's ministry. Or it could be elevating Jesus's ministry too quickly. But for whatever reason, Jesus ends up leaving and he heads to Galilee. But he makes a stop on purpose in verse 4 that we're going to see. And I want us to recognize this. I think, again, we might gloss over this if we don't slow down and look at it closely enough. But Jesus, as he moves intentionally, he's not moved by human pressure. He's not moved because the Pharisees are learning about him. It kind of seems like he's ducking out. But Jesus never moves anxiously. He moves very, very intentionally. And he's moved not by human pressure, but he's moved by his Father's direction and mission. Here's why I think that's true. Look at verse 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria. In the original language in the Greek, this phrase, he had to, is, almost carries this necessary weight with it. So it's necessary for him to move 
through Samaria. The problem with that statement is if you know anything about geography, you have Galilee, Judah's down here, Judah's down here, and Galilee's up here, and Samaria is kind of in the middle, so if you look at a map, you might think, well, he does He does have to go through. That's the most natural route to go through to get to Galilee. But if you know anything about the Bible, the Jewish people, which we'll unpack in a minute, they despised the Sumerian people. And so they actually would take a route all the way around, and they wouldn't go through Samaria. They made it very intentional not to go through that city. And so if Jesus doesn't have to actually go through Samaria, and most of his people don't do that. He could have gone another way. Why does it say that he had to pass through Samaria? I think it's because of what we just talked about. The reason he is deciding to go through Samaria is because he has a divine appointment with this woman. And that's the first point we see from the text is that love intentionally pursues. Jesus is intentional not to go that other route, but intentionally to go through Samaria. He has a divine appointment with this woman. And I'm really thankful that love intentionally pursues. When I step back and I think of my own life, I'm so thankful for God's intentional pursuit of me. People that know Jesus, aren't you so thankful for the intentional pursuit of Jesus on your life? You were lost, you were blind, you were far away, and Jesus intentionally went after you. He didn't have to. He could have gone another route. He didn't, but because of his love, he intentionally pursued you. Let's see how he intentionally pursues this woman. Verse 7, again, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Point one, love intentionally pursues. Point two, love crosses cultures. This scene, like most of the scenes in our Bible, is thick with cultural significance. And if we don't understand the cultural significance, we won't really understand what Jesus is doing in this moment. Jesus' interactions breaks the cultural barriers of race, of sex, of attitude, and many other things as he interacts with this woman. First barrier that he crosses is the barrier of race. The Samaritan people, if you want to understand their origin, you go back to 2 Kings chapter 17 and you see what happens that some of the Jewish people are left behind and they start intermarrying with people from different nations and they create a new race called the Samaritans. And that was frowned upon by some of the Jewish people. Not only did they do that, but they only followed the first five books of the Bible. They disregarded the rest of the Old Testament the Samaritans did. And then they 
ended up building their own temple. There was the one temple in Jerusalem where God dwelt, where you come to worship God, but the Samaritans didn't like that. They built their own temple on a mountain. And so the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans at all, and it was culturally heavy. Paul Miller says, This interaction would be similar to in 1930s if a a Jewish person asked a Nazi soldier into their home for dinner. That's how heavy this hate was between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And Jesus crosses those lines. He also crosses the fact that he's talking to a woman Because in this time, women were not seen as equals. Jewish men, even avoiding speaking with any women in public, even their wife. So this is culturally heavy, and Jesus, in his intentional pursuit of her, he does not care that she is different than him. He actually moves past the fact that she's a Samaritan. He moves past the fact that she's a woman. And then, even in the differences, she kind of has an attitude with him. If you read into this, most women, if you were understanding a story like this, if a rabbi asked a woman at a well culturally to say, hey, would you give me a drink, pour me some water, the woman would pour the water and she would leave and not say anything. What do we see this woman do here? She goes at Jesus right away. She's super direct and she's kind of sassy. And she's asking him all these questions. And Jesus doesn't back away from that attitude. He actually leans into it. And he becomes direct with her as well. Jesus is the ultimate display of loving people as he crosses into their culture. And a side note, Jesus is the ultimate cross-cultural minister. If you really think about it, you take a step back. Jesus leaves heaven to come down to earth. And he puts himself in a body. That is very different than he's used to, to understand people. And so he crosses those cultures, those barriers to love us. And he calls us to do the same thing. I mean, do you love people that are different than you? It's not an easy thing to do. Because if you're like me, you'll start to maybe move to, towards somebody that's different than you, and then maybe you have an awkward conversation, or, and you just, you know, I'm just going to walk back over here. But Jesus continues to pursue her. He doesn't just end when she asks him this question at the very beginning. He pursues, he pursues, he pursues, he pursues somebody that's different than him. And our love for God and our love for others, the Bible says, is inseparable. 1 John 4 says it this way. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Men and women, you are put in situations divinely to move towards people in love that are different than you. You have family members you can't stand. You have coworkers you don't understand. And God is calling you to move towards them. Just like Jesus moves towards this woman. The same gospel that redeems us from sin and restores us to right relationship with God 
also leads us in faithful response to wealth disparity, generational gaps, our theology of the disabled, how we are to relate to people that are not like us. It's to move into those spaces. So number one, love intentionally pursues. Number two, love crosses cultures. And then what we're going to see here is that love, number three, goes below the surface. Let's look back at verse 11 and 12. The woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? I love what John does here, the gospel writer. Is I almost feel like... Um, what he is doing is he is pairing, and, and again, we are not in the book of John. We're all over the Gospels right now. But if we were in John chapter 3, do you remember the interaction that Jesus has with a human in that story? It's Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is highly cultured. He's a religious leader. And he has this conversation with Jesus about what it means to be born again. And then the next chapter, you have the lowest of the low, this woman of Samaria that has no credit in society, and Jesus has a conversation with her. And do you remember the responses are similar? It's almost like the parable of the lost sons. It, John is using these characters to illustrate the father's love. But with Nicodemus, he doesn't understand. Born again? How can I be put back into a Oh, he's only looking at the surface. He only sees what's right in front of him. And the woman has the same response to him in verse 11. How are you going to get water? You don't even have a bucket. And God's love goes below the surface with Jesus. We need to be reminded, are you ever in a situation like Nicodemus or like this woman that you can only see what's on the surface? You're asking the question, God, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why this is happening to me right now. And you're only looking at your current circumstances, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to you at all. You're asking, what are you doing, God? This doesn't make sense to me. Jesus keeps moving forward towards her. He goes below the surface. Verse 12, she asks the question, are you greater than our father Jacob? Love what Jesus does here. Because remember, again, the Samaritans had their own version of Jewish theology. They didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament after the first five books. And what Jesus does here is he does not correct her theology. He doesn't say, wait a minute, let me help you understand how this thing works. Because that's kind of where she starts to go in self-defense. He doesn't do that. He just keeps going deeper. Verse 13, look at his response. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What does Jesus mean in verse 14 when he's saying, whoever drinks of this water, that will give them, they'll never be thirsty again. Is Jesus kind of implying that once you become a Christian, you're not going to be tired and you're not going to be sad and you're not going to have longings anymore? Is that what he means by be thirsty? I don't, I don't think that's what he means. What I think he's trying to help her begin to understand is that you have run to these things to get life. You've run to this well, this water to get life. 
And when you become a Christian, men and women, you don't have to run to those wells anymore because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. God is housed in you if you follow Jesus. And now, it doesn't mean you won't get tired. It doesn't mean you won't be weary. It doesn't mean you won't be hungry. It doesn't mean you won't be thirsty. It doesn't mean you won't be depressed. But instead, now you have access to this well, a well of life and spring and water. We can go to God instead of going back to those wells that we think will give us love and significance and purpose. And they don't. They don't last. And Jesus says, this well is different. How does she respond to what he says to her, verse 15. So the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. She doesn't get it. She's only thinking about what Jesus can provide physically. It's like what we talked about, what Sean talked about last week. She wants to use Jesus as a means to an end. You have this water? That would be great because I'm tired of coming here by myself in the heat of the day, kind of as an outcast. I'm tired of that. If you could just provide water, that would be amazing. And Jesus, because love goes below the surface, listen to how he responds in verse 16. You would think if you just read this dialogue and you weren't tracking with it and slowing down with it enough, it seems like Jesus' answer is kind of odd. She says, give me this water. Listen to what he says back to her because she's not fully understanding what he is trying to communicate. Jesus says this in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What Jesus is doing is he's helping go below the surface. He's cutting directly to her heart. And he's saying, listen, this is not about water. This is about where you're going to get your satisfaction from. And it's been with these men. And how is that working out for you? It's not. It's not working out for you. Let me help you get to your heart, get under the surface. And that's what love does. Jesus helps her go deeper because she doesn't quite understand what he is doing in the moment. And it's interesting when you look at the dialogue or even the word count, the very beginning, this woman, is she's like 32 to 28 words. She's asking him questions. She's going back and forth, and then he goes straight to her heart, and what does she do? Six-word answer, I have no husband. What I think she's doing in this moment is she's trying to control the situation because she's getting exposed. But Jesus continues after her. She now turns, and we're going to see in just a second, in verse 19, she starts kind of debating and kind of having this flattery towards him, but Jesus doesn't bite on what she is saying. He continues to pursue under the surface of her heart. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So again, the context is there's two places of worship. The Samaritans worship at this temple on the mountain. The Jewish people worship at this place in Jerusalem, at this temple. And she's basically saying, listen, well, which one is it? Tell me which one 
it is, you're a prophet. She's kind of changing the subject. Verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is here now when true worshipers will worship in fa- the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. There's so much to unpack here, but we're not going to. Um, I think the biggest thing about this section that is helpful is helping. She tries to deflect again. She tries to not go there, and Jesus keeps going after her heart. He's, she's saying, well, which one is it? Are we going to worship here? Are we going to worship here? And he flips the tables on her, and he helps her understand. And when he says in verse 22 that salvation is from the Jews, he's not making an ethnic statement in that moment. We might read it that way. He's making a theological statement in that moment. Because again, the Samaritans were taking parts of the Jewish religion and they're mixing it with what they like. And Jesus says that is not the way people follow God. The Jewish people were called out by God himself to build a nation. It's not about you concocting a religion. It's about what God is doing. That's why he says salvation is from the Jews. I like how Paul Miller describes this section when he says this. He says, Jesus describes a whole new world order in which worship won't be confined to a place. Instead, worship of God will be from the heart. God is seeking real people like this woman who will be true worshipers of the heart. Jesus is back to inviting her. He never stops moving towards her. Listen to what she says in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. I don't know what she means here. I think it could be one of two things. It could be that she's just ready for Jesus to stop talking. She's tried to dodge and deflect, and she's like, listen, uh, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us this debate of which temple we should worship at. So just, just stop. Or... Could it be that she's really starting to believe? And she's indirectly asking him, are you him? Are are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Verse 26, Jesus responds this way. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And throughout the Old Old Testament, God's people are waiting. They're waiting for a deliverer, for a Messiah to come and fix everything, make everything right again. And Jesus, in this moment, opens up to this woman, this empty, adulterous, sassy, dishonest, poor Samaritan woman, despised by the Jews, and she's probably despised by her own community. Jesus opens up his heart and clearly states, I'm the Messiah. It's interesting about this. This is the only time Jesus claims to be the Messiah in the book of John until he gets to court. He opens up to her, and this is the pattern of God. He shows himself to the weak, to the sinners, to the outcast of society, and he welcomes them and says, you have a seat at the table because of my love for you. 
So number one, love intentionally pursues. Love crosses cultures. Number two. Number three, love goes below the surface. And the fourth thing that we're going to see from this interaction is that love is contagious. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but nobody said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the, women, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and they were coming to him. Our natural response, men and women, when we encounter Jesus, our natural response is to drop everything and tell everyone. That's it. It's just like Peter. He drops his nets. He follows Jesus. This woman, she drops her jar. She leaves it at the well because she's so consumed to tell everybody what she's experienced. And we have to understand this if we're trying to walk with Jesus. Love is contagious in that way. And when you have an interaction at your soul with Jesus, you tell other people about it. Forget even Jesus right now. We are wired as humans because we're called to be in mission to do this. Think about it. When you watch a really good movie, what do you do? You're telling everybody about that movie. Did you see that? You got to see that. I'm reading a couple books right now that are really doing something to my head. And so everybody I'm talking to, I'm saying, have you read this book? Could you, do you believe what this book says? What about when you eat really good food? You eat really good food. What's the first thing you do when you meet? Have you been to this restaurant? This place is unbelievable. You have to go. When we encounter something that we love, we talk about it with people. So the question is like, man, are you, do you really love Jesus? It's not a guilt question. I'm not trying to guilt you into telling other people about Jesus. Like, don't do that. But like, Is it just naturally in you that you want to tell people about what God is doing in your life, that he's active, that he's moving, that he cares about you, that he loves you? Listen to what God did this last week in my life. Or is it just kind of like, well, he did something when he saved me 10 years ago. I kind of, he's good, I guess. We love to talk about things we love. And we see that in this woman's reaction here. Love intentionally pursues, love crosses cultures, love goes below the surface, and love is contagious. Now, the danger in a message like this, or even a series like this that we're talking about, is that we walk out of the room this morning, and we attempt to do these things without understanding our power and where it's rooted. Here's what I mean by that. If our job is to love people as Jesus loves people, and that's kind of summarized in compassion and honesty. If we're supposed to move towards people in compassion and honesty, we have to start asking the question, why are we moving towards them in those ways? Because we could walk out of here and we could have four things. You could say, okay, these are the four things I'm going to do this week. I'm going to try and be a better Christian. I'm going to do these four things. 
Kind of reminds me if you're at a Bible study and you're studying the book of Galatians, chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which talks about what God naturally produces in you if he is in you and moving in you. And it's this whole list that Paul gives. It's love and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control and other things. And you could be at a Bible study and you could say, okay, what's the one you need to work on? Like you read this list, what's the one that you're like, man, I really need help with that one because I'm not living that one. You say, okay, it's patience. I am terrible at patience. I'm not good at living out patience. And so you go, okay, here's what I want you to do next week. I want you, every time you're at the grocery store, I want you to go in the longest line and don't look at your phone because that's going to help you be more patient as a person. And sometimes in the self-help American Christian version of what we see in the Bible, that's what we start to do. We say, we're going to take these four things and we're going to apply them to our life and we're going to be a better Christian. The problem is the power source with that thinking. It is not correct. And so this is what we do. We've got compassion and honesty. We have to start tracing it down to the roots. You can go to the next one, John. And find out what is it that we're really going after at a heart level, at a well level, when it's down deep. And when we start doing the American version of pull yourself up and be a better Christian, this is what happens. We start to find this. Go ahead, John. We become self-righteous. We have pride and we do religion. And this is not what God is calling us to do. But we get stuck in this version of doing this because we want to love other people well. We want to be compassionate. We want to be honest. And so I go, okay, I need to be more honest with this person. And that's as far as it goes. And we don't think, what is our source? What is our power source for being honest with that person? Let's look at the end of the story here. Verse 31 says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I love the humanity of the Bible because what's happening here is his disciples leave, they're going to get food, and they leave him. They know Jesus is tired. We saw that in the first section of the verse. They know he's probably thirsty, and they know he's hungry because they're probably hungry too. And they come back, and they say, you know what you do when you're really tired and really hungry and really thirsty? You do some silly stuff, man. It's like that Snickers commercial. Like, you're not yourself when you're tired and you're hungry. And so Jesus sees, they, they see Jesus talking to this woman, and they're like, what is he doing? He should not be talking to her. This doesn't make any sense. Jesus, eat some food. You'll get back to normal. Eat some food, and you'll feel better about yourself. This is what he says, verse 32, how he responds to them. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I love this verse 33. The disciples said to one another, somebody brought him something to eat? Like, (laughs) did Jesus have something under his robe? Like, how how does he have food? This doesn't make any sense. Look at what Jesus says, verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So when Jesus traces down compassion and honesty that he has with this woman, you trace it down. You don't get self-righteousness. You don't get pride. Go ahead to the next one, John. You get dependence. Jesus is fully dependent on the mission of his Father and the power of the Spirit. And men and women, if we're going to walk out of here and do anything to love other people well, we have to be dependent on Jesus and his Spirit. That comes through prayer. That comes through not just making a list of how to do these things better, how to be more compassionate, how to be more honest. I'm okay with lists. But instead, go, God, I need you in this moment. 
God, help me. Spirit, would you give me the right words to say? Would you give me the right words not to say? We need to be dependent, and the vehicle is through prayer. We need God's Spirit to help us with this. We do. Because we want to be people that love. We want to look like Jesus. And God has given us his spirit to do that. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this reminder for us that we do have access to living water. And Father, I pray that we would recognize that, that your spirit would convict us of areas that we have gone, that wells that we have gone to for self-righteousness, for pride, when your living water is accessible to us. We need you to help us understand what that looks like so that we can love other people well. We want to put you on display, Jesus, to people around us. We ask you to do it in us. We ask you to do it through us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.